0: Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. You probably saw the photographs toward the start of the coronavirus' spread across the United States. People lined up around the block, waiting to get into a gun store. Because guns are almost entirely the province of... right wing and bitter-clinging, proud-clingers of our guns, our God, our, and our religions, and our Constitution. Tell us that we're not red enough. It's easy to cringe at such an image, or dismiss it as foolery. It's a bitter reminder that the Bill of Rights has guaranteed us killing machines, but not the right to be healthy. And, as James Pogue argues in his April cover story for Harper's Magazine, it's exactly because guns have always been a part of American life that they shouldn't be owned and operated exclusively by conservatives. Pogue profiled the Socialist Rifle Association, the SRA, an organization of leftist gun owners across the country. Rather than death-wish, revenge fantasies, the group seeks to reclaim the notion that guns safeguard against tyranny. Something that, as the Trump administration continues to bungle the pandemic, seems to be increasingly relevant. I spoke with Pogue about his article. I just wanted to start with something that's a pretty obvious objection. I mean, there are a lot of people who are left of center, or maybe just center-center, mm-hmm. who will react in disgust to the premise of your article. <laughs> Obviously, you can't make somebody who doesn't want to read the article read it, but, what, but how would you respond to someone who has that visceral reaction?
1: Well, I would say probably two things, and they may sound contradictory when I say them. The first is that, you know, hey, all right, sure, if your objection is the idea that a world that where firearms did not exist would be a better one, I absolutely agree. Sure. I mean, it's very difficult for anyone to not agree with that thought. And it's very difficult for me to sit here, and I'm not going to sit here, and say that I think that the fact of firearms existing, either in American life or in the world, is something that is gonna, is helping the world morally or something. I don't believe that. The flip side, however, is that it's like, in a certain way, any technology that's been introduced into human life that brings with it this sort of whole Pandora's box of very complicated moral questions, first of all, and questions of like what the technology can and should be used for and how we limit its use and whether or not limiting its use is a fair choice to make about how an individual can choose to use it versus a society and how they can decide what individuals should be doing. And fundamentally, what we've come down on, for better or worse, in America, is this answer that actually guns are something that we have chosen to have be a part of our life. And not only that, we've basically made political structures that make the elimination of guns in our lives more or less impossible. So the two things that I would say is that like, what we as a country decided was since guns are going to be a part of human life and political life, we are going to devolve the power to own them to people. So that they can have the choice to limit the power of the state so that they can have the choice to use or not use this frankly violent technology and i would say that i'm very far from the only american as a matter of fact a large majority of americans agree with me that actually there's something about a society that trusts its students to do that that's pretty valuable now does that mean we manage things very well no does that mean that it wouldn't be better if we just didn't have them at all no but my objection is that the left frequently is not living in a real understanding of what guns do in American life, what they represent, and how much power they actually convey it to people. Um, so that would be my first take on that. And then we could talk about it. <laughs> later, this, this is the whole thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it's um, because obviously people see the headline and they're like, what the fuck? They just don't want to, to even be receptive to, but as you get into, it's a lot more complicated than that. And what I responded to the most was that your story begins with the Bush era and the beginning of mass surveillance. And that comes back later in the piece, as you're discussing how the notions of guns as protection against unchecked authority has largely disappeared as part of this national conversation about them. And the surveillance apparatus, whether it's through cameras or social media or smartphones, is completely unchecked abuse of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that also applies to like police departments who use hand-me-downs from the Iraq war. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you touch on why that idea of protection against authority disappeared from mainstream discussions of gun ownership? I mean, is it entirely because of like right wing ideologues or are we just kind of complacent against things like mass surveillance and these other factors of American life we just come to accept?
1: Well, I would, and now I'm going to offend liberal listeners even more, but I would actually (laughs) say that right wing ideologues are the only people who kept the flame of like what a gun could represent as resistance to unchecked authority alive. And I mentioned in the piece that, you know, I've spent almost my entire career covering groups that operate in the space between politics and violence, right? Groups that are like militias or maybe like outlawed terrorist organizations or things that are operating in basically more or less functioning societies, but yet bring armed politics into it. Right. And in the United States, The people who were doing that, especially, especially at the start of the Obama administration, were people that now, you know, regarded as politically untouchable in this country, and perhaps they always should have been, but they were people who were incensed by the Bush administration, who felt like the Bush administration had betrayed them as these are, you know, right-wing guys, and especially the Western United States, who felt like the Bush administration betrayed their sort of libertarian backing of him and created this massive surveillance state. Um, I always remember like a pretty major Pacific Northwestern uh, militia leader who once told me that he got radicalized by having to go to the airport and take off his shoes. And then I started to see these people do something that was really interesting, which is that when you take a gun and you bring it into politics and you say, I dare you to kill me, but I'm going to defy you anyway. I'm going to defy you. Uh, If you kill me, that's fine. That's your prerogative. But other people are going to stand up and do the same thing because we're all mad. When you do that, surveillance goes out the window. It doesn't matter. No no one's surveilling. When the Bundy family takes over a wildlife refuge, surveillance has stopped being a force that works on them because now they're just daring you to kill them. And they've got guns, so you can't go in because there will be a firefight. And so frankly, and again, people don't like to necessarily hear this, but more or less every single armed action undertaken by right-wing militias in the last, six years of those when they've been pretty frequent, more or less every single one has been victorious. Now, <laughs> you can make a lot of a lot of arguments about, well, those things being victorious in part because they were carried out by white people, because they were right. effectuating right wing agendas, all of these things. But the fact is that armed politics has been proved time and time again in recent moves portions of American life to actually work. Now, I'm not, again, suggesting that this is something we want all the time. But the idea that it's something that should be the exclusive province of the right seems really scary to me at this moment.
0: Right. You profile members of the Socialist Rifle Association. And part of their platform, and this is sort of maybe this helps address what you were just saying, is that they want to create more hopeful politics. But how can you create more hopeful politics with a machine that kills people? Or is this just like, you know, socialists can't have money like that sort of uh, like logic error?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Right. Was the American Revolution a hopeful project? I I mean, you know, the, when you yeah. us. Right. I know, you know. Of course. I mean, this is one of these things, right, that I think the piece wrestles with implicitly is like whether or not some of the American traditions that we learned growing up to celebrate are now wh- whether they all need to be reappraised re- or like to what degree we can learn from American traditions and then discard others and all of this stuff. But I just mean that in the sense of like when people undertake to build a better world and some of it involves violence, is that a hopeful project or not a hopeful project? You know, and historically often hopeful projects have come from those things. The flip side, I think that people on the left are experiencing right now and part of why I mean maybe it's a self-selecting group but I got a lot of people who wrote to me who said they hated guns all their lives but this sort of opened them up to what could be a hopeful vision of them it has to do with the idea that for so many of us and you know I don't know how you capture this exactly politically but I'm It's something that we all talk about, I think, these days. I think it's something that we're all latently aware of. So many of us feel as though our politics are fundamentally unresponsive. So many of us feel that our politics fundamentally have stopped being able to address the major issues that we are going to have to be able to address if we're going to continue to have a society. I mean, we have a government that is barely functioning in the faces of a pandemic right now. We have a government that is absolutely incapable and frankly, like almost uninterested in addressing the possibility of a climate collapse. yeah, And so there can be a blend, I think, of hopeful politics and also like a sort of hard-nosed realism that some of that may have to involve very hard stands. And I think that that's something that can give people hope. If your idea is, hey, look, like I'm not beholden fully to a state that can end up being taken over by hypothetically a barraging fascist crazy president... I'm not necessarily beholden to a politics that is entirely dominated by corporations. That can give people hope. It can give people a sense of agency. And as a matter of fact, that's something that firearms have done in American life for a very long time, is create that sense that, hey, this is something that people can fall back on. Again, that's a dark thought, but it is something that we've lived with for a long time and I don't think should necessarily be the only province of the right.
0: Right. You also, in describing the Socialist Rifle Association, you say that their project is to, quote, turn the, the country's long, complicated relationship with firearms into a vehicle for recruiting people into collective action and politics, end quote. What would you say to those on the left who might have the opposite intuition that combining the words socialism and guns is going to alienate potential converts who feel strongly about nonviolence or hate socialism or who find the idea of armed politics more frightening than liberating?
1: I mean, I would say a couple things to that, which is on the one hand, I mean, most of the people, most of the people who truly are terrified by guns are already probably pretty far left anyway. On the other hand, Again, like we kind of have to live in the real world. Guns are one of the most single culturally divisive, I mean, certainly objects, but even ideas in our political life. And frankly, most people in America support the right to own one. So if you are making a basis of left politics that does not include gun owners, then you are fundamentally not making a politics. You're not even living in the real world. And you're not thinking fundamentally about... I mean, I cannot tell you how many people find out and I'm not a huge gun guy, honestly, uh, but I cannot tell you how many people just find out that I own a gun, and in places that I could never have had a political conversation otherwise I mean in you know rural Montana, wherever it is, mm-hmm. all of a sudden open up and have an idea like, oh hey, maybe this guy isn't such a you know loser city liberal as he might as I might have thought, <laughs> right. And, you know, it's something, honestly, that I use a lot in my reporting because I hang, you know, I go to these places where they kind of are willing to assume that even just being from L.A. makes you city liberal loser. And all of a sudden you can have conversations. All of a sudden it's, you know, politics are happening. The unfortunate thing that doesn't go directly to what you're asking, but perhaps of interest. The unfortunate thing is that, you know, a few... And I thought this might happen, but I honestly maybe thought that it was going to be better. Like a few gun websites, like blogged about the piece and stuff like that. And the comments were batshit. Like, well, you can't look
0: at the comments. Come on. I know. You I know. know but it was,
1: it was there were thousands. There were thousands of them. And they were like, this dude just wants to send you to a camp. This guy, socialist, oh. they're going to Great thing. Give the socialist guns because they're going to come and kill us all. And I was just like, oh, wow. Right this is what you guys think. Fair enough. It's a, it's a long process, but at least it's opening that conversation even with them, you know?
0: Yeah, no, that's true. Um, and this, this is a, this is a two part question so first um the sra developed out of jokes and conversations on reddit as so many things do and judging from the groups you profile most of the members seem to be 20 and 30 somethings who live outside of cities and have relatively precarious working class jobs yeah so i guess do you have any actual numbers on the makeup of the group along class race or gender or just like a loose sense of what that breakdown is I
1: don't have like a numerical breakdown. We, we obviously, and I'm a member of the Socialist Rifle Association, uh, we, I don't think, compile racial or gender sorts of things because a lot of people don't want to make that known to us or they wouldn't even necessarily have pick a side in <laughs> a lot of that. Yeah, you there's a lot right. and of in all those things. With that said, you know, I was at the National Convention and I would say it was... Definitely, definitely very young. And that definitely, I mean, there were like a couple people who I would say had class backgrounds of similar, that were similar to mine in the sense of like, you know, like I'm not from money, but I went to a, I went to a liberal arts college and like, I live in LA, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. I make a living as a journalist. Like there were a couple of people who were like, Hey, let's go out to this place for dinner, but you would not go out to those places for dinner because almost no one who had come to the national convention was in a position where they could spend 35 bucks on dinner. And it was interesting because, you know, being on the left, I'm sure you're aware working at Harper's magazine, being on the left in A lot of context, you know, means hanging out with like some guy who went to Yale who has an opinion on like an anthropology text, and this Mm -hmm. is not that, and and, which is really neat. And it's been really neat to discover that there's five thousand people who you know work at Jimmy John's, and are a part of this organization that really, really cares about its members. And so I'm now blanking on whether I quoted this in the piece, but there was someone at the convention. I don't know. It was just a really touching moment at the end where. They got up He as a taxi driver and didn't have enough money in his account to fill up his cab. So his cab was stuck outside of his house somewhere in Minnesota. His cab was stuck outside of his house uh, and he hadn't been able to make money. And like the SRA people gave him some money and then somebody drove him down to the convention. He hung out. He'd never owned a gun before he'd never owned a gun, but somehow he got into the SRA and this became his sort of political community. And then he didn't have any money. So he stayed in a, in a couch at the hotel and then everyone paid for his food and his weed and his beer. Uh, and then he went back, you know, but it was that kind of thing. It was like actual genuine, you know, I, and, and it can almost sound trite to say this kind of stuff, because when you hear it, in the halls of Harvard, it sounds different, but it was actual genuine working class solidarity, you know? Um, And, and I I thought it was really powerful, honestly.
0: Yeah. I mean, do you see other places on the left where people have been finding new entry recently, like other rallying ideas that the left has let the right monetize and that should be reclaimed or, (laughs) I mean, obviously gun, this is, this is fertile ground, but what else?
1: The thing that comes to mind and, and, Kick me off if it sounds like I'm recommending a podcast here, like while people are trying. But the funny thing is that uh a lot of what people in the SRA will talk about as a sort of casual nomenclature is that is the world of the street fight left, um, which yes. is people who, who may or may not, but may just resemble the kind of listeners of this podcast, Street Fight Radio, which is, you know, just guys in Columbus. I think at least one of whom owns guns who they do things about shitty small business bosses. And, um, you know, they have these call-in shows and it'll be like someone calling in from a pot belly sandwiches night shift. Like they're cleaning up, you know, a dirty toilet and it's stuff that you really, people find this very deep community on, but it's not people that, you know, even, even the left, I think sometimes stereotypes the left as sort of elite coastal things yeah. and there's this whole other world that the SRA, frankly, has been my window for discovering of people who are really genuinely not a part of these elite cultural circles, but are organizing and organizing really, really fast. Um, it's just out of sight. It's on YouTube. It's on podcasts. It's on Reddit. It's places that that a lot of the sort of liberal political commentators of the world don't go.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of podcasts, I listened to the SRA's podcast. Pretty good. Oh, did you? Yes. Yeah. Um. And one of the subjects in your story is talking about a documentary that was made about the group. And she says, I gave this very long discussion of my evolution from the 2016 election to joining this organization. And the BBC just cut it so it went from 2016 to now. And all of the nuance was lost. And she was saying, like, you know, I appreciate that the BBC is supposed to be an organization without bias, but yet you're losing all the nuance of the moves that actually made me get to this place. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how, as somebody who works in the media, to what extent is this the media's problem? Because obviously the media has to cover things like mass shootings. However, there is, uh, I don't want to say, I don't want to say that the media benefits from people not owning guns, but like <laughs> there is a weird kind of, hesitance to really take it
1: on i have a lot of answers to this um <laughs> but you know i think on the the first thing the first thing is that is it not an unfair characterization of major media organizations in general to say that they have created an environment where the gun debate in america is not functionally a debate it's like this kind of like weird shadow world where supposedly some people are, quote, pro-gun and supposedly some people are, quote, anti-gun. And it's like, what, what, like, try and find me an actual human being in America who believes that all guns should be outlawed. Like, they exist, but that is such a vanishingly thin portion of the population in the United States, of the voting population in the United States, that it's almost like the idea that there's any segment of American life that is, quote, anti-gun is simply insane. That's not a real population. But you wouldn't think that. I mean, you wouldn't think that based on Twitter or like watching cable news because there's this idea- Well, cable
0: news who gets all of their ideas from Twitter. Let's be clear about this. There's a bad relationship right there.
1: Yeah, and like, that's such a good point because it's there's this shadow narrative actually on Twitter where all of these people who fundamentally know nothing about gun politics or guns in general are themselves like describing themselves as like anti-gun. And it's like- what do you mean by that, actually? Like, do you think that every handgun in America should be outlawed? Do you? Because most people don't think that. Does anti gun mean that you don't think assault rifles should be around? And if so, why? Because most people die from handguns. Like, none of this is actually discussed, right? And I think when you add in something like the BBC and the SRA, I think, felt pretty shafted by that BBC piece. The thing is, I think a lot of people weren't ready for the way that that foreigners look at guns and guns in American life and just with abject horror. They're just like, why do you have these? Right. And to some degree, I wrote the piece in response to that feeling of like, hey, this is it. And I actually had a few people who are from not from the US write to me and say that it helped them understand it, but also that it reinforced in their opinion like a feeling that like America has this really unique relationship that they don't get. You know, but the thing that I was going to say too about guns in the left is that, like, you know, on the right, the thing that I say in the piece that, as I, I would argue, probably the, the driving force of the piece, guns are fundamentally political tools. Here, they're to, the reason that we've clung to use Obama's phrase, clung so tightly to guns as a thing that we're allowed to own, is because they represent for so many people a vision of a society where the government is to some degree afraid of its citizens. Right. And on the right, that's absolutely uncontroversial on the right. No one would ever hear someone say that and be like, Oh, that's crazy. And somehow in liberal circles and indeed in like sort of polite centers of policy and discussion in Washington and New York, that idea just seems crazy, you know? And my friend, Hal, who is a left-wing gun owner who lives in rural Montana surrounded by some extremely right-wing uh, yes. <laughs> gun <owners. laughs> But he gets along fine with them. And, you know, he's really tough. Uh, he's a real tough, like, backwoods, gun-owning, very left-wing guy. And he has no problem getting along with with other sort of, like, guys like him who happen to be right-wing because they fundamentally share as so many Americans do, fundamentally share a, an idea that our society is like sort of spinning out of control and not working. And that's a really easy thing to come, to come to an agreement about. And then people look at the desire for guns within that society, and they feel like it's crazy. And he was like, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that a lot of really comfortable people in the media no longer understand what it's like to believe in something so strongly that they'd be willing to die for it. And he was like, and if you don't understand what that feeling is, then you don't believe anyone would do it. And then all of a sudden, guns start to seem like something that has no political use.
0: Right. Or just something so foreign that it's just, it's incomprehensible.
1: Because if you have this sort of technocratic vision of of society as like something that basically fundamentally works fine and like we only need to make little tweaks, which only a few people actually do, but they (laughs) happen to be the people who Conversation. Yeah. If you happen to believe that, then you don't believe that any political vision is worth dying for. So why would anyone ever use a gun for any political purpose? And Hal's point was just like, look, most people who own guns don't think that way. Most people who own guns think that there's stuff that you gotta die for. And again, that's a really scary, uncomfortable thought. I understand that, but it is how politics have been done for a century and millennia. So it's not actually as crazy as it happens to sound in our current technocratically happy vision of what a society maybe should look like.
0: Right. You've been charting the extremities of the left-right divide in American politics for a while. And as the coronavirus spread across the U.S. over the last few weeks, there have been several stories of Trump supporters and Fox News pundits downplaying the threat and calling it a calculated attempt to influence the election. It's hard to know how widespread that is. Like any, just as you were saying, it's hard to know really what anybody, even though opinions are everywhere, what people actually believe, or whether it's continuing to happen now that Trump seems to be taking the threat more seriously in certain ways. What's your sense of that divide, that left-right divide? And also what's your personal sense of the appropriate threat level at this point?
1: Well, as regards the divide, like... I mean, I'm basing this exclusively on talking to friends of mine who are in places like Utah and stuff like that, people who've been involved in certainly the extremities of the American right. And I think that they are taking it pretty seriously, honestly. I think that people, you know, I talked to a friend in Utah, he said that everybody was pretty hunkered down, the Walmart was sold out, but, you know, it was pretty calm. And you know he was like, "But this isn't that crazy to us because we're fine. we've been ready for this for years and so he was like, he was like, "I don't really know. He was like, he sent me a picture of a deer he just shot. He was like, I'm fine <laughs> and <I> was like <laughs> um, and so I would say too, that like there's a a large tendency on the right to feel like liberals freak out about some of this stuff in part because people on the right have been saying for years that our society is out of control and crazy and sucks and they've been howling with rage and so they're like yeah like how is this any different with that said as regards sort of threat level I mean I'm sure you've seen pictures of people lined up outside of gun stores right now yes Like, right now, even gun parts manufacturers are having trouble delivering, like, receivers so that people can build a gun in their home. Like, even that stuff is starting to, like, slow down. Supply chains, man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, the thing is, like, (laughs) it's not prepper craziness to wonder, hey, how long can a supply chain keep up if most of a country is shut down? And at that point, what does our social breakdown look like? Right. Because, you know, a friend of mine, also in Utah, who I asked once, I said, you know, if there was civil disorder, hypothetically, say there was an election in which Trump rightly or wrongly believed he had won and the rest of the world rightly or wrongly believed that he hadn't won. Right. And there was some kind of civil disorder. And my friend, cool as a cucumber, said back to me, he was like, well, what are you going to do against 100 million people with half a billion guns? And I was like, oh, Uh, like you've already thought about this. I hadn't thought about this. I I was like just raising a kind of, you know, casual hypothetical. And he had an answer on the tip of his tongue. And I'm not trying to terrify anyone, but I'm just saying that that is a way that a lot of people in right-wing circles think. And if you just want to pretend that away, or if you just want to pretend away that like, Nothing could ever happen that would involve civil breakdown or civil disorders, or indeed a president refusing to leave office and then causing Lord knows what I just think you're living in a fantasy world. I mean a few weeks ago, nobody thought that we could all be living locked down in quarantine. here we are
0: right, yeah, ever since twenty sixteen anything is possible, anything is possible. We know this. we just haven't dealt with it yet. <laughs> what would you say to you know situations where gun violence is really bad in this country so places like you know favorite right-wing talking point chicago like how do guns help a situation like that Mm -hmm. because guns do seem to be it's almost like a disease it's it's a terrible part of a terrible and unfair part of life in certain parts of chicago
1: and they don't help anything an answer that would be the happy version of the answer, which is not the one I'm going to stand by. But I mean, one version of that is, you know, like where there is less poverty and desperation, there's less gun violence, A, and B, uh, there's less gun suicide, which is the primary way that people die from guns in this country. But leaving that aside to some degree, the fact of the matter is that handguns and the way that handguns are distributed in this country is absolute disease. The piece is not at all like an argument that everyone should run out and buy a handgun tomorrow. I I think handguns are really dangerous in a lot of ways. And I think that there's a lot, a lot, a lot that people who support gun ownership in America can and should be doing to restrict how handguns basically flow into places that honestly, they cause... So much death and desolation, and there's no reason for it. I mean, there's no reason for people to be buying handguns by the dozens in Virginia and North Carolina and driving them up to New York. You know, that's like what we're used to call the iron pipeline. The flip side of that is that gun laws wildly disproportionately impact Black people. Uh, and they are the number one driver of disproportionate sentencing and arrests in federal prisons in the United States. Gun laws, not drug laws. Because people use anytime you've got a gun anywhere halfway within half a mile of you and you commit a crime in this country, they're going to slap you with an extra five years. They're going to get, they have all these add-ons, you know, and all of these little things where if, you know, largely if a white grandma gets pulled over with an unregistered handgun because she drove the wrong, through the wrong jurisdiction in Pennsylvania, she's usually going to be fine. A black person, that's not true. A lot of the time. And so you get people hit with these minor, minor, minor infractions of gun laws that are really, really hard to keep up on. And then all of a sudden they get sent for 10, 15 years to federal prison. That is as much of a problem as the actual violence in a lot of way. Now, again, it is all caused by the flow of guns, right? And so the trick is, I think that a lot of what we have in right-wing gun culture and in in the the NRA-driven gun culture is this kind of constant drive towards everyone buying these like little handguns to pack with them at all times to, for self-defense against like robberies, you know, and you know, just some guys breaking your garage, like. But you're carrying your gun. You've got it. Like, and to be told, like, most people who break into your garage don't need to get shot. Like, they just don't. You don't need to shoot some guy who cuts you off in traffic. You don't need a gun all the time, right. in my opinion. That's, that's just my take. And so, this kind of constant paranoia, which feeds the sale of handguns, which are just to kill other humans at near range. That's what creates this world where it's so easy to get a handgun and they will flow into places like Chicago's, where they flow into places like Brooklyn. And then it becomes this authoritarian craziness where all of a sudden now anyone walking around Brooklyn can be shoved against a wall and stopped and frisked. And so it becomes this cycle of authoritarianism and then more people... Flowing in more guns, and then more people going to prison, and then more families being broken, and then more people going to jail. You know, it, it just turns into this hellish nightmare of policy failures and paranoia and everything else. That's a very long way of saying that it seems pretty reasonable to me to make some very sensible steps about how we could restrict the flow of handguns into those places. Like I don't, that's not inconsistent whatsoever with a building a world where people can also feel comfortable with handguns. Feel like. They have a right to own them, even if they're left-wing. And I wouldn't want to take them away from that at all. A lot of that is going to come, though, from breaking the power of gun organizations like the NRA to say their own vision of what guns are. Like, they shouldn't be able to dictate all this because they're the ones who are work the hardest to prevent those kind of measures.
0: Hmm. I mean, so I guess part of what your argument is, is not that everyone should have a gun, but rather we need to rethink a lot of the laws and sentencing around guns. And also, you know, if somebody was convinced by your article, like what what type of gun should they go out and buy?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> that's interesting. I mean, the first answer that I would give is probably don't just run out and buy a gun. The second answer is, you know, think of your own needs. Uh, I own, um, well, I'm not going to necessarily say, but... I I don't own a handgun, and I own guns that are, for the record, fully compliant with the laws of the state in California, but also, like, are only really sporting firearms. Like, I don't have anything that you would classify as, like, something that I could use to defend my house, really, um, because I just don't care. That's not – I don't feel unsafe in my home, and if somebody wants to rob me, fair enough, you know. I don't have that much – so that, but that's my personal need, right? I like having access to an AR. I don't own one myself, but I like knowing people who have one that I can train with because I think that that's a gun that if you were going to see some kind of civil violence in this country, that frankly is the gun. Uh, I mean, it's a good pattern of gun that you, you, you can make bad ones. It's just a, a pattern of a gun, but it's a good style of firearm uh for a lot of purposes. It's it absolutely makes a lot of sense why people love it. Does that mean that every person who's curious about guns should God get an AR-15? No. And like again, I live in California. As most people would think of an AR-15, I can't even own one. You know, I'd have to modify it in certain ways. So and long story short, I think that a lot of people who are curious about this stuff can start by, you know, whether it's the SRA or whether it's going online or anything but just start with the presupposition that guns are not terrifying that guns are something that you can get comfortable with and that know what they're not the province of anyone else like they're not they don't have to be intimidating there are people out there who are really not friendly and really frankly like possessive of gun culture who will make you feel bad who will belittle you who will do all of this kind of stuff to make it seem as though it's guns are only things that like tough right-wing guys really know about. And it's just not true. And there's also this other whole world of people who will really help and who can make them less mysterious and make them less scary. And I think that that is something that people on the left are going to have to get used to in this coming crazy world.
0: All right. Well, thank you for the very hopeful note. (laughs) We can all change the world if we try Um, and get ready because it's going to get stranger um, so thank you very much
1: thank you, I appreciate it, I enjoyed talking
0: you've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins the music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation, through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.